Our brains are powerful machines, but they're not perfect. Sometimes the very things that make them nimble and adaptive, like neuroplasticity, can actually have the opposite effect, keeping us stuck in a bad situation. And chronic pain falls into that box. Paul Beegler has looked into this for personal and professional reasons. He used to be a doctor. Now he's a science journalist. Paul, welcome to Life Matters. Thanks, uh, Hilary. Thanks for having me. That's a pleasure. I mean, this is something that's so relevant to so many of our listeners. Tell me first about your knee and how it spawned a book. Look, uh, perhaps foolishly, Hilary, at the age of 47, I decided to take up bike racing. This is about 12 or 13 years ago now. Uh, and was doing training uh, on my push bike, going to the Queen Victoria Market in Melbourne and bringing back a big load of groceries and decided to do sprint training with about 25 kilos in the panniers on the bike and gave myself a case of something called uh, patellofemoral pain syndrome, um, which you know resulted in chronic pain uh, above my left knee. Uh, and look, I put up with this for, for some months and, you know, I stopped riding the bike, I stopped running, uh, stopped swimming, stopped just about uh, everything that I thought might make that pain worse uh, until finally I went and saw a sports and exercise physician and he said, Paul, have you heard of this thing called neuroplasticity? Um, and, you know, I hadn't really been aware of it at this stage, but he explained to me uh, how something called maladaptive neuroplasticity could be causing me to feel pain in the knee, but what it would the, the initial pathology to the knee, the, the damage to the knee had prob to the knee had probably healed. And what was happening now was that my sensory nervous system, the sensing nerves that go up and relay in the spinal cord and then go up to the brain, was was amped up. It was it was sensitized in a process called central sensitization. And such this- that it was was super sensitive to any any uh, stimulus coming from the area and was amplifying pain and causing to me, me to feel pain even when uh, the stimulus wasn't painful. For example, just a breeze blowing on my knee when I was riding the bike. Well, then that just sounds absolutely terrifying to so many of us, I think, that, that this thing could develop a bit when the injury at the site has healed. I'd be very keen to hear from you if you're listening, if you've experienced chronic pain at any time in your life, pain that medication alone couldn't fix or perhaps even surgery didn't fix. What other interventions worked for you? Our Facebook page has some very interesting suggestions, which we'll get to soon, and you can tell us yours up there as well. Uh, Paul Beegler's book is called Why Does It Still Hurt? How the Power of Knowledge Can Overcome Chronic Pain. And Paul, you you detail in the book how it, it kind of, this experience set you on this journey to talk to a lot of pain specialists. But you're not saying that pain is imagined, are you? Just that something other than damage at the injury site is happening. Yeah, that, that's it, Hilary. So, so as it becomes chronic, the, the one-to-one connection between the pain that we feel and damage at the site starts to break down. So, you know, acute short-term pain is a pretty accurate indicator that, you know, something's gone wrong in the tissues. Either there's been an injury or inflammation from an infection. Uh, something is wrong there and we should attend to the anatomical part, whether it be through drugs, injections, potentially even surgery in some cases. But when pain becomes chronic, that is lasting longer than 10 to 12 weeks, it becomes a much less accurate indicator that there is ongoing damage to the tissues. And central sensitization, which I mentioned earlier, is one of the primary mechanisms for perpetuating pain in the absence of tissue damage. But in the book, I also detail several other mechanisms whereby the pain can be perpetuated. And look, I think it's important to, to, to mention that, you know, our uh, uh, 
goals and ambitions are really important here. I mean, I was training for bike racing. So any uh, sort of threat to that goal uh, that was presented by an injury to my knee, I was taking on board as something that was really negative. And we know now in chronic pain, the, the changes in the brain shift from being initially in, in the sensory cortex where we feel any sensation, including pain. With chronic pain, it shifts to the emotional regions, uh, the amygdala, the hippocampus, which are areas that process anxiety, fear, and sadness. And I think one of the things that was contributing to my pain was that because the pain constituted such a threat to my sporting ambitions, I was getting very negative emotions uh, overlaying those sensations. And we know that when that happens, the brain is going to tag those sensations with threat and is far more likely to turn any sensation from that anatomical part, even if it's not a legitimately pain-producing one, into pain. The pain is real. It is 100% real. It hurts, but it may no longer be indicative that there is damage to that to that body part. So how does that serve us as humans in an evolutionary sense if our brains get it wrong sometimes and, and debilitate us? Yeah, great question. And it doesn't really serve us, but it's part of the brain's agenda. The brain is a little bit like a helicopter parent. It's overprotective. And it's got this kind of heuristic, this mental shortcut, this bias, whereby it says, let's be better safe than sorry. So if, you, if you've had ongoing painful stimuli from an area for you know, more than a few weeks, the, the brain perpetuates this sensitization in, in, in the nervous system as a, as a way of almost expanding the alarm system around the area, around the knee or the back or wherever the pain is coming from to get you to say, oh, no, I'm going to stop moving on this. I'm going to rest it and do the things that you, you normally do that work in acute short-term pain. We, we know rest, ice, compression and elevation are, are really useful in the initial treatment of an injury. But you know, resting and not moving apart in chronic pain, if you've you know, being under the care of a health professional and you've ruled out an ongoing structural issue that needs rest, rest is actually one of the worst things that, that you can do. And reintroducing movement in a kind of low and slow and graded fashion is a very important way of addressing chronic pain. It's really interesting reading your book, Paul Begler, Why Does It Still Hurt? Uh, because it became clear that it's important to know where the pain is coming from, if it is still uh, pathology at the injury site or, or elsewhere, because as you say, it radically changes the treatment treatment approach, but it also made me realise that I was quite confused about nerves, whether they are a physical part of the body or, a, you know, more related to how our brain functions. Can you give us a little quick rundown about how nerves relate to our pain? Yeah, well, you know, there is a sensory nervous system that will take, look, let's take the knee, uh, you've got sensory nerves from the knee, they go up to the spinal cord, they relay there in a, an area called the dorsal horn, ascend the spinal cord and go to the brain. Now, the brain's actually got a way of stopping those uh, painful sensations from getting up to the brain um, and making you feel pain. And it's a really complex mechanism, but it does uh, have deep roots in two really important parts of the brain. Firstly, uh, the, the prefrontal cortex or the, the medial prefrontal cortex, which processes uh, thoughts and cognitions, and the emotional brain regions that, that I mentioned earlier. So, you know, if you've got really negative expectations about what's going to happen with the pain, it has been turned cat catastrophic thinking, it's never going to get better, uh, you know, things are just going to get worse, then 
that contributes to the perpetuation of pain because it it inputs into something called the the, the descending modula, modulatory pain system. Um, negative expectations can open the gate in in the lower part of the brain, the medulla, uh, and let those pain signals up into the brain. And similar thing with negative emotions, sadness and anxiety, and, and related negative emotions. And of course, those negative emotions, everyone's going to have them when they've got chronic pain. You just feel awful and you're in a dark place and you think that there's no way out and that's entirely understandable but one of the really interesting things is that those negative emotions aren't just a consequence of the pain they can actually cause it and understanding that you know you can begin the process of winding back chronic pain through for example um, targeted psychotherapies that educate people about sensitization and also about the role of, of emotions. Mm. Well, and, you know, surgery is not going to fix your emotional state, is it? Tell us, Paul Begler, a bit about what happened for you when you first started exploring what was going on with your knee, the, the course of treatment that you were recommended and how you felt about that. Yeah, when I saw the sports and exercise physician, you know, really the most important thing was this understanding about central sensitization and maladaptive plasticity and the understanding that, look, Paul, you may well have ongoing pain in the absence of tissue damage in your knee. It's likely to have got better. That's that's a therapeutic knowledge in and of itself because that can turn down the threat tag. You attach to sensations from your knee back wherever, and when you turn off the threat, you can turn down the pain. But the other really important thing, and look, it sounds really basic, Hillary, but it was just moving. Um, and, you know, I was really into bike racing. So my doctor, Cal Freed, who, who's in the book, um, you know, he said, look, get a stationary trainer and set your road bike up in the garage and just go out tonight and roll your roll your, your legs over on the bike for 30 seconds. Just pedal for 30 seconds. And that's what I did. And then, you know, I stopped and I didn't ride a bike for two days, just waiting to see if the pain came back. You know, you become hypervigilant. The pain didn't come back. So two days later, I did it for 60 seconds and gradually increased the time that I spent on the bike. And so what that was doing, it was changing my expectations about getting pain. And our expectations really, as I mentioned earlier, can, you know, uh, be a self-fulfilling prophecy and cause pain. But it was really importantly, a kind of experiential reinforcement that rolling the legs over on the bike wasn't going to cause me to get pain again, but doing this in a low and slow way. And that probably addresses another cause of of perpetuating pain uh, in chronic pain, and that is uh, learned pain. So we can learn through a process of associative learning to link pain to the cues that came with the initial injury. So my injury came from riding the bike So I could just sit on the bike and start getting the pain in anticipation of of turning the legs over. So so that graded exercise or pacing, as it's called, can wind back that that conditioned pain, that that pain that's learned through association. I want to talk more about graded exercise in just a moment, Paul Beegler. But uh, you were set on a path for surgery at one point, weren't you? And I wonder how strong the evidence is for treating the kinds of conditions that you had with surgery, Uh, because you found out something very interesting about the number of people who have some of these musculoskeletal conditions and and the level of pain they experience. Yeah, look, I had a later knee injury. I I tore a meniscus. That's the shock-absorbing cartilage in the middle of the knee. And look, it was probably a degenerative tear. I'm I'm 60 and this happened about three years ago. 
Uh, and I had a lot of pain initially, and the pain went on. Uh, and I saw, you know, a wonderful surgeon uh, who, you know, recommended a trim to, to that meniscus uh, through an arthroscopic procedure uh, into the knee, a keyhole surgery to to make it better. And you know, there had been been some evidence in the past that this could actually improve things. But there had been uh, also a recent study that had compared that procedure um, uh, to a fake procedure. <laughs> So, you know, a lot of people haven't heard of these so-called sham-controlled surgical trials, but basically what was done in this study was half the people with a degenerative tear in this meniscus were given real surgery to trim the tear. The other half were actually taken through the whole surgical process, the anaesthetic, what was the spinal anaesthetic, taken into theatre, couple of cuts made in the knee, the arthroscope inserted, the the tear visualised, but they never had that trim to to the tear. And, you know, both groups were followed up for, for a couple of years and they all improved uh, at the same rate in terms of their pain and level of function. So what that study really suggested uh, in a study of about 135 people was the so-called critical surgical element of trimming that tear wasn't causal in improving people's pain. People's pain was probably getting better, according to that study, due to the placebo effect, which is very, very powerful in conditions like pain because it can cause uh, the release of our our body's inner painkillers, the endogenous opioids and endorphins, Um, or uh, the the illness was simply running its natural course and getting better, or symptoms were, were what's called regressing towards the mean. So in any painful injury, the, the pain tends to be worse at the start, tends to kind of regress or get better towards the average level of pain. Well, so, interesting you should say that because a text has popped on. in, uh, Paul Beegler, on the question of arthritis. Re-Paul's pain management plan, uh, pain management, how does this relate to chronic pain associated with arthritis, which, as you know, doesn't tend to lessen? Yeah. Well, look, there's a program, program in Australia called GLAD, Good Life Arthritis, uh, Osteoarthritis Denmark, run by Christian Barton, who I do interview in the book. And it is all about the role of education and exercise in the treatment of osteoarthritis of the knee and hip. And we know that exercise can help in osteoarthritis. And look, it can help because exercise causes the body to to produce uh, those endorphins and also serotonin, which can uh, be an analgesic as well. Um, But one of the other really interesting things that I do detail in the book about exercise is the work of Kathleen Sluker in the US. And she's done studies on on rats and mice um, where she's had these uh, animals exercise uh, persistently over five days or so on a running wheel. And she's found something really amazing happens in in their skeletal muscles. With these mice, her her experiments would induce a pain syndrome by uh, under anaesthetic injecting the calf muscles with a slightly acidic solution of, of, of salt water. And these mice would routinely get um, hypersensitivity to painful stimuli in that area after this injection, so mimicking a, a chronic pain syndrome. But what she found was these mice that were running on a treadmill for five days or so, she couldn't induce the pain syndrome. She'd give them the injection and they wouldn't get pain. And so it set her down this path of working out why. And what she discovered was that there are these immune cells that sit in the, the skeletal muscles called macrophages. And in mice that were sedentary that didn't exercise, when they started exercising, they produced inflammatory proteins that can cause pain. But in the mice that exercised persistently, those macrophages were undergoing a kind of personality switch. They were changing so that when these mice exercised again now, 
uh, those macrophages would spit out anti-inflammatory proteins. And, you know, y- your listeners would know that anti-inflammatories, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories are taken to treat pain. Exercise was causing the body to turn on its own inner anti-inflammatory. So that's another reason uh, why um, exercise may be helpful in osteoarthritis. Well, and as, as we're talking about chronic pain conditions, it's becoming clear how many different kinds there are and how different treatments may work for some and not for others. And Paul, I know that with the graded exercise or paced up exercise that you discuss in your book, Why Does It Still Hurt? Some people with MECFS, for example, or fibromyalgia, are very cautious about these kind of graded exercise programs. How confident should we be that they will work for everyone? Do they need to be applied with caution? Yeah, look, there's there's no one size fits all approach, and you know people with fibromyalgia, you know, they they have a really challenging time. Um, I think the work of Henrik Victor, uh, who I also interview in the book, is really important here, because you know what he's found is there's there's something called exercise-induced hypoalgesia. And, you know, we've talked about how uh, exercise can reduce pain. It does this in healthy people. You, you ride on a bike for 15 minutes uh, and then you press one of these things called a pressure algometer. It's like a little handgun that, uh, with a metal probe that presses, presses on your leg. And, and you can take – it causes pain. You can take about 20% more pain after you've done exercise. And the amazing thing is that that effect is all over the whole body. It's not just in the leg that's been exercising. It can be in the back as well. And what Vita has found is that uh, for for people who get a flare-up of their pain with the exercise, they don't get that overall hypoalgesic or or less pain effect. Um, And, you know, what he stresses from this finding uh, is that it's really important to try and find an exercise that doesn't hurt the bit of the body that you're exercising. So let's say, you know, you've got pain in both legs and your right arm. Um, but you can actually move your left arm. Finding an exercise where you can vigorously exercise that that left arm will have some hypoalgesic or less pain effect uh, on those remaining areas of the body. So one of the the pieces of advice for people with fibromyalgia, if at all possible, is to find a form of exercise that doesn't flare their pain. I know that can be challenging. Yes, but you know there's a bit of empirical knowledge that could potentially underpin some improvements for those people. We're speaking with Paul Beegler. He was a doctor for 20 years. Now he's a science journalist, and he's taken this really deep look at how we deal with chronic pain in Australia, uh, spawned by some issues with his knees in the first place, but really wide-ranging and looking at a lot of different ways that people are approaching this uh, without surgery and, and drugs in some cases. Paul, lots of texts coming in on this. This is really, excuse the pun, struck a nerve with people. Many sufferers yeah. of chronic pain don't have the financial Financial resources, says one, to access the types of resources Paul is talking about. Inability to work due to chronic pain immediately places a huge burden on people. And another text says, the pain clinic in John Flynn Hospital on the Gold Coast is brilliant, works with people in pain holistically. Staff are a team of people. No longer is pain just something that requires meds. That's not the experience of uh, all the people who are texted in, I have to say. Brad says, thank you for highlighting what is a very much an invisible visible illness. As a long sufferer, it can be a nightmare to navigate the medical profession. And in the worst case, it's not even being believed. Chronic pain impacts one in five Australians and not-for-profit organisations like the Australian Pain Management Association are trying to fill the gap in the medical system. But funding for chronic illness doesn't match the size of the problem. 
Governments and policymakers need to do better and listen to chronic pain sufferers. Paul, in our remaining minutes together, I want to talk about one or two of the people that you spoke to for this book, because uh, I think Lauren's case in particular illustrates a lot of the points we've been talking about today. Tell me briefly uh, what she went through. Yeah, Lauren was hit by a truck riding her road bike training for a triathlon. And look, she initially had some some pretty bad injuries. She injured an arm, um, but she had a kind of shearing injury to her thigh um, where, where two of the layers of, of muscle and fat separated. She had bleeding there and she developed chronic pain, you know, around that thigh, buttock area. It spread to both sides. She had the classic things that happen in chronic pain. Um, uh, you tend to get spreading pain because uh, one theory is that there's a kind of imprecise representation in the brain of that initial injury. And so it does its overprotective thing and kind of protects a wider area. So this pain spreads. And look, she was in a diabolical state. You know, she had surgery on a knee because it extended down to the knee. They found nothing. And look, finally, she she went to a talk by the pain revolution, Laura Mosley, who's, you know, our preem- preeminent legendary pain researcher in Adelaide. Um, and she heard about central sensitization. So that was really the pathway out of this for her, um, you know, understanding that knowledge. And look, I think some of the comments you just mentioned earlier about the team approach, she was looked after by a team. Um, and, you know, she she was given these psychotherapeutic tools using mindfulness to have a detached approach to the pain to, to, to kind of look at it and evaluate it. Uh, she learnt to, to kind of make safety reappraisals to, to realise that the area was was no longer injured. It had probably healed and she now had pain coming from sensitised nerve pathways. She used a bunch of strategies. She stopped getting her partner to say, how's your pain today? Um, and just he started asking her, are you comfortable? So she didn't keep getting reinforced with this term pain. So a bunch of strategies in a kind of multidisciplinary approach to to pain really helped her. But also, you know, she had this incredible vulnerability to sensing um, threat from these sensations because, you know, she was obsessed with with winning and, and doing triathlons and so on. So understanding that that threat was leading to this catastrophic negative thinking and the brain was tagging those sensations with threat and, and, and turning them into pain, pain that was 100% real, really hurt, but was less likely now to be indicative of tissue damage. So multidisciplinary appro- approach. And your other your other uh, listener talked about the finances. We need to finance this because the Barbara Walker Centre in Melbourne that, that feature in the book with its former director, Jane Trinker, I mean, they can only take about 100 patients per year. It's a great program. But the amount of resources that we could actually, and money and suffering that we could save by putting enough resources into managing chronic pain and giving people access to it could just have in- incredible benefits for our, our communities, I think your listeners have pointed out. Yes, indeed. We're speaking with Paul Beegler. The book is called Why Does It Still Hurt? And it looks at lots of different people and their approaches. There's one uh, who uses virtual reality, a kind of therapy where you, you can kind of show your brain a functioning limb and, and trick it into going, hey, actually, everything is safe. It is okay. And as you heard from Paul, Lauren uh, had to do some work to work out how her goals and motivations and her triggers were affecting her experience of the pain, which, as he says, is real. So, Paul, are you saying that pain can be eliminated using some of these approaches or just that we can rebalance how pain is treated using medication and surgery and these other approaches? 
it's going to be a range of things. But um, look, I think I want to point to the work of Tor Wager in the US, who also features in the book. And look, he's done a recent study that showed that pain can be cured, even pain that's lasted 30 years. In the case of of one uh, person, Greg Whistler, who I interview in the book. And look, Tor's recent study, you know, very briefly, they used a, 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 a psychotherapy called pain reprocessing therapy, which really incorporates parts of, of cognitive behavior therapy. So education about central sensitization, this safety reappraisal, using mindfulness to view the pain sensations that are coming in. And they divided people who'd had back pain for at least 10 years, four out of 10 pain, uh, they divided those people into three groups. One group got treatment as usual. One group got a placebo injection of, of saline in the lower back. Uh, and the third group got this pain reprocessing therapy. And they followed them up for a month and then 12 months. And you know, p- pain as usual, about 10% were, were pain-free or, or nearly pain-free at a month. Placebo, it was about 20%. But the people that got the, the pain reprocessing therapy, two-thirds of them were pain-free or nearly pain-free after a month, and the effect held for 12 months. So look, and, and Greg, who I interviewed in the, in the book who, who had pain, he had pain for 30 years. And look, I mean, it's, it's an amazing story. It won't hold for everyone. But I think, you know, the, the lesson of these stories is that there is hope. I mean, these people have been in just the darkest possible places, and they've been able to come out of it. I don't want people to think this book is Pollyanna-ish. Mm-hmm. It, it's not going to cure people. It is essential knowledge, though, and it's not. I'm, I'm not. I don't have a monopoly on this knowledge. You know, this is uh, siphoned from the experts around the world. But I think it's essential knowledge. It's material to people's informed decision making about how they go forward, whether it be through a non-drug treatment, through drugs, uh, through surgery, through injections, whatever path they choose. I think making an autonomous, informed decision. Uh, requires being in possession of the information in this book or getting that information from an appropriate other source. Yeah, it is helpful to have all that knowledge aggregated by someone <laughs> with the scientific chops and medical chops to make sense of it. And Paul, you do a great job of explaining these complex uh, concepts very easily for, for me and our audience. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me on the show, Hilary. Paul Beegler, pleasure to chat today. A science journalist, former doctor, author, whose latest book is called Why Does It Still Hurt? How the Power of Knowledge Can Overcome Chronic Pain. And there's so many people touched by this, I think. One says, what about the pain caused by paralysis, phantom pain? And that's where the virtual reality came in in Paul's book. They used it to trick people into going, actually, that limb doesn't hurt. It is okay. My brain, calm down. It's safe. Angela from Lilydale says, I daily tell myself my bones and muscles are fine. My leg won't fall off. So, she says, I push myself to walk, though I'm unsure if the nerves are pinched. Val writes, 10 years ago, mindfulness and meditation changed my ability to manage chronic lower back pain, plus a heat pack applied to the painful area. And another just finally says, the flip side to the new fashion of diagnosing people with chronic pain and central sensitization is that patients are gaslighted and told there's no cause for the pain and the real cause is missed. I was diagnosed with chronic pain after surgery. Seven years later, a surgeon removed the teeth of the bone saw left in my leg and the pain magically disappeared. This approach, says the text to pain, caused me to live with pretty severe pain unnecessarily. The medical profession seems completely unaware of the risks. So as always, a variety of experience here on Life Matters. Listen to more great stories that take you beyond the headlines. 
Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.